Hello and welcome to Detroit from Across the Pond with me, your host, Andrew Lewis-Smith. This is a podcast about stories. It's about people. And it's people doing really interesting things, often amazing things. And yes, it is set in Detroit in the United States. But to my mind, wherever you are listening in the world, people are people. And the stories and the things that they're doing are relevant. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to this, the very first episode of season two of the Detroit from Across the Pond podcast. I will talk a little bit more about that at the end of today's show, but season one was fantastic. I really talked to some quite remarkable people. And today, this is, for me, a really a real treasure of a conversation. So um, meditation for me is a really important thing in my life, has been for many, many years now, keeps me on the uh, straight and narrow, let's say. And I really miss it when I don't do it. Uh, and today's conversation is with someone who espouses a rich uh, and deep wisdom and, and experience and knowledge of Zen meditation in the Korean form. So I just want you to enjoy today's conversation with Myungju, who is the vice abbot of the Detroit Zen Center which I hope to visit one day and, and sounds like quite a remarkable place. Enjoy. Hi, as I was editing this episode and just about getting it ready to publish, I realized that I needed to tell you a couple of things. Firstly, there are two meditations at this, one at about 44 minutes and one at about 85 minutes. They're both relatively brief, but I probably shouldn't have to tell you this, but really not a good idea to do whilst driving or working any sort of machinery. So just maybe chill out and mellow and sit down or relax or sleep or whatever works for you. The other thing is you might hear a little bit of interference on this. Now, hopefully I don't think this is my guest going to sleep with my question, but it's actually Toffee the Chocolate Labrador. And she was very mellow through the whole of this conversation and snoozed all the way through. So occasionally, I think I reference it at one point and then Myongju references it at another point. So uh, hopefully it will make you smile. Thank you. Bye. I'd really like to welcome today Myongju, who's the vice abbot of the Detroit Zen Center. So welcome, Myongju. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's really nice to be here with you. I think what would be really nice for the listeners, because I know that I have listeners in different places. There's Holland and Denmark and the States, and, and lots of people are not at all familiar really with Detroit, and certainly the sort of the micro bits like the Zen Center. It'd be really nice if you could just give us a little bit of context about what the center is, so whether it's residential, who's there, where is it, and, and just to, uh, so people can place that as we're talking today about a whole range of different things. Oh sure, yeah. Um, maybe I should start at the at the foundation of the center. Mm. And, uh, so our our abbot is a native Detroiter. His name uh, is Sunem, and uh, he was born in the forties, early forties, uh, as Alexander Lundquist. He, his father was a Finnish immigrant, and his mother was an Irish immigrant, and so they had come to Detroit like a lot of people at that time for opportunity. And so he grew up in the 40s and 50s in the city and uh, was a, a football player and became uh, a public school teacher in the city. And so he often describes that he, um, he had his first sort of spiritual dilemma when he, uh, the riots broke out. 
here in the city of Detroit in the 60s. And uh, some, he and some of his other um, uh, co-workers, the school teachers, were working as peacekeepers um, to try to sort of help calm the situation in the city. And it was quite violent. He actually lost one of his students uh, that he was teaching, uh, was, was killed uh, during the riots. And so he said that, you know, as the city became racially more and more divided in that time, that he really felt like um, he was lying to his students. He was driving in from a wealthier part of the city every day and teaching in a, in a pretty poor community, a very underserved neighborhood. And he was teaching these kids that if they worked hard and they really studied hard, they could get out and they could also be successful and, and find opportunity. And he's described that he felt at some point that he was lying to them. And the riots really cemented that for him, that this was, um, you know, th they were not going to have opportunity. And so, you know, he describes it as that he just ran away. He, he realized he couldn't help. He couldn't contribute. He didn't want to remain um, in the midst of all of this suffering. And so he uh, left and pursued his own opportunities elsewhere and became eventually a, a professor in sociology and then was working in the um, in Ontario, in Canada, uh, for the provincial government in amateur sport. In any case, uh, years passed, and he met a Buddhist monk there who was a refugee uh, from Korea and uh, had been uh, gone AWOL. The, the monks in Korea during the occupation and the Korean War uh, were forced to, to, to join the military. So this particular monk who became his teacher had fled the army and uh, stowed away on a boat to Japan, eventually became a refugee in Canada. And so he really found him on the streets of Canada, sort of roaming around, living in a basement apartment. <laughs> and he was putting up handwritten signs uh, for meditation. And he said he was a professor and he knew something was missing. He didn't quite know what was, you know, he had all everything that, you know, he sh that should make one happy. You know, had a Corvette, yeah. you know, uh, a girl, attractive girlfriend, and an apartment, and was making money. But he will. He describes that he he felt there was still something missing. Mm -hmm. Didn't didn't know what to do about that, and came across, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a handwritten flyer for meditation, and called it up. And this monk answered, and uh, said, "Yeah, if you want to meditate, come tomorrow at six o'clock in the morning." And for some reason, he did. <laughs> uh, and, this monk didn't really speak English, but I think we were speaking about this a bit earlier before we began recording. He, They had some sort of karma together. They had some uh, unexplained, mm. uh, you know, they had business together in this life. And uh, he wound up quitting his professorship and moving in with this monk into this basement apartment. Wow. And spent the next uh, six, or, six or seven years with him uh, studying meditation. <clears throat> and that led him on his own journey uh, back to, uh, to go to Korea and became ordained and became a, a, a Buddhist monk in, the, in that teacher's tradition and spent a number of years training in Korea. And then uh, after 18 years of training with this monk in Korea and in, in other monasteries, uh, his teacher in Korea said, you know, you should go back to the States and and teach them what you've learned. Don't mm -hmm. sort of live your life out here in the, the clouds, you know, kind of, uh, you know, living a comfortable life in Korea, go back to your, to, mm -hmm. uh, to the States. And he was in his early fifties. He wasn't a spring chicken at that point. <laughs> so the idea of going back to America with nothing, you know, he really didn't know what he was going to do. Um, 
he had an invitation to go to California, which probably would have been the smart choice. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of, especially in the, at that time, it was 1990. There would <clears throat> have been a lot more support for him mm. in a place like California uh, to do something, you know, like start a temple or a center. But he decided to come back to Detroit, which was his hometown, to visit family and sort of get settled uh, with an idea. And once he got here, he realized he needed to do it here. So that was 1990. And um, he began looking around uh, the city. And there was, of course, you know, a lot of abandonment at that time. The city mm. was really in, in, a, a, in dire straits. And he came across this particular property, which is in Hamtramck. Hamtramck is a, a two and a half square mile enclave, which sits pretty much in the geographic center of Detroit, but is its own separate uh, city district. So we have our own city administration and we have it's Hamtramck has always been known as the place where immigrants land. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So we have 32 ethnic groups in Hamtramck in this two square mile district. Wow. Uh, but um, we're, so, yeah. okay, Mungta, can I just interrupt you? Um, if you can hear a background noise, um, it's my chocolate Labrador, Toffee, who's asleep uh -oh. here. And I think she's dreaming. She's probably dreaming of chasing rabbits or a ball <laughs> or something. So if you hear some strange noises, that's it. So sorry, I cut you off in your flow, man. Oh, no, so that's you okay. You were talking about Hamtramck being very diverse then. Very diverse, yeah. 32 ethnic groups and at the, the high school, which is just up the street from the Zen Center, you know, if you get out there on the streets when school gets out, you just see just a wonderful, diverse mix of young people intermingling. And you'll often hear, you know, many different languages being spoken. So it's a really great place to have a center. And the property that we're in, uh, Detroit and Hamtramck was not an exception to that. There was a lot of abandonment. So in 1990, this, uh, the, the facility we have in, uh, here at the center was a, a Polish wedding hall and oh. a speakeasy. And it had a. Uh, what's a just, can I ask what a speakeasy is? So that's so, not a term we would use in, in the UK. So know. during Prohibition in the 1920s, okay. yeah, uh, yeah, alcohol was banned. It was illegal. And so a lot of, uh, especially in ethnic neighborhoods, um, people would get together and break the law and you know drink. Ah, okay. So we had this private club here uh, where the, the, the gangs of Detroit would hang out with the police officers and, uh, and drink uh, <laughs> with, with, you know, liquor that was basically bootlegged over from, the, from Canada right across the river here. Right. So your abbot set that up in around 1990. And, and was he by himself or did he have, I don't know what you would call them, people who meditated with him or... Yeah, he had a few friends, old friends from when yeah. he had lived in, in Detroit. And uh, he met a couple of people right off the bat who wanted to, you know, support his idea. Uh, but he really had nothing. He had, you know, $50 in a backpack. And uh, you know, a couple people gathered a couple thousand dollars together and said, well, if we can, <clears throat> you know, we'll see what we can do with this. So they rented an apartment for him and he got a job um, as a carpenter. He had some carpentry skills from mm -hmm. his time uh living with his teacher in Canada. And that's how he raised the money to eventually, um, he found this property in Hamtramck and it's quite large, but because the buildings had been abandoned for 20 years, it was completely dilapidated. Right. You, know, you could see holes up to the sky in the, the, <laughs> the former wedding hall. You know, the raccoons were the first uh, resident meditators, not, not people. <laughs> and I actually ventured by, I came here, um, actually with my father as a teenager around mm. 1994. 
and the place was just a complete wreck. They, they he had set up a, a little place to meditate in the basement of the residency, and there were some kind of young, uh, kind of bohemian like you know young people around that thought it was really cool to, that they had found a Buddhist monk. You know, <laughs> pre-internet. So it was, you know, yeah, really didn't yeah. feel like it was a secret. And so we would sit together in this basement. Uh, and that was uh, around 1994. And I remember he would say, yeah, one day this is going to be a, a Zen center. This dilapidated hall here is going to be a meditation center. And I remember we thought, I wonder who's going to do that work. <laughs> I realized I was looking at the person in the mirror. So, <laughs> so, so that so you, and did your dad go along to those, or was that just the sort of the younger types that went along to the meditation? There, there were mostly, I would say, quite a few young people, but there were yeah. some older, serious people. Uh, to be honest with you, a lot of people were very comfortable to come into this neighborhood. Yeah. So, you know, you you really had to either be you know, young and stupid, or, you know, kind of adventurous. Um, or because again, the city was so blown out, there really was not much of a, a population in the city of Detroit, there were really not, mm-hmm. there wasn't a culture here yet, as there is now of people looking to do alternative practices like meditation, people in Detroit were just surviving, you know, they were going mm-hmm. to work and, yeah. you know, it's all they could do to pay their bills. It still is for the most part for most Detroiters. So the idea of coming and meditating uh, at that time, especially, was really something that would be uh, available to someone from the suburbs, someone who had a little bit of affluence and had the time uh, and the education to, you know, maybe read about it or find it. Uh, so the people that were coming to the center were often coming from the suburbs, or they were inner city young people that were, you know, living, uh, you know with a bit of adventure in their, in their yeah. belt. And so often, I, I do remember at that time, people coming and asking our abbot, like, why are you here? Why don't you move? Why don't you start a Zen center in our community? We'll, we'll, we'll support you there. You know, <laughs> they really didn't want to have to drive yeah. in to the city and, you know, people would have their cars broken into after meditation or, you know, during meditation, uh, you know, we had several situations where there were drive-by shootings in fact, the first year before I came along, mm. um, a young man directly behind the Zen Center in the alley was shot and killed over a drug deal that had gone bad. Mm. And it was right in the middle of an introductory class to meditation. And I remember, you know, talking with our abbot and, and he, you know, didn't leave. Uh, but many of the people that came for that class never came back. Right. Um, you know, it's just it was just too much. Yeah, yeah, sort of, sort of understandably as well. I yeah. think, yeah. and I think you know that I think there are parallels for Detroit in, industrially in, in terms of many parts of, of Britain, which are sort of they're not post-industrial, but the heavy industry is gone, and uh, a lot of the infrastructure is a bit run down. So there's similarities right. there. So I can imagine some of the areas I come from in Yorkshire, in, in England, you know, plonking a Zen centre down <laughs> into some of the middle of those, it would be quite strange, I think, and sur- surreal. So you talked a little bit about your, you mentioned your story. Story there, your, your beginnings of, of going along in sort of in the nineties. Could you say a little bit about you know your background and how you've you've gone from you know being a teenager um, in this dilapidated old building, and then and now here you are with your role. And as you say, you've been one of the people who's been doing the building up. Oh sure, yeah. So I I have I would like to say as well that it's you know the changes that I've seen. Um, and so it's been about twenty five years that I've mm. been kind of rooted, I would say, at the Detroit Zen Center as my primary home, uh, spiritual home. 
you know, the changes have been tremendous. And now Detroit really does feel like um, a place that is this interesting mixture of, of, of darkness and light. Mm. You know, at that time, it was, it was just so incredibly dark and heavy. And you know, there was a, a real feeling of, of heaviness and that really no one was going to come here and or you know and contribute anything really to mm. the city it was really the energy was leaving and i think what happened in the same way that when the tide goes out you can sort of see you know the sandbar and it's quite interesting mm. now the tide is now starting to come in and it's bringing with it uh because of all of the the dilapidation and and uh the difficulty it really did create a blank landscape and i think like any sort of uh, you know, blank canvas. It's it, it's a very creative time. There's a lot of potential mm. there, and now I think maybe that's something you may be attracted to. There is this feeling in the city the past you know five to ten years now that anything's possible, and a place like a Zen Center could exist. We we really the facility we have now and the community and the things that we do here now really couldn't have been done in a place like California or New York because it would just frankly be too expensive. Right. And, uh, and, you know, it's just a Detroit reminds me of being, um, uh, there's an element of, of being in the third world. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you have the, the conveniences of the first world. Uh, so you sort of have this interesting mixture. And uh, I, I just think it's, it's an incredible city. And Hamtramck is so rich in the middle of it. It's a very blue collar town. Uh, blue collar enclave. So, yeah, I feel so fortunate to be here. You know, and when I came to the center uh, as a teenager, I I didn't have any intention of taking up Buddhism mm-hmm. or meditation seriously. I was, you know, like a lot of teenagers, I had my own struggles and uh, had lost someone that I was very close mm-hmm. to, and I was uh, somehow I thought if I met a monk or uh, that that they would. Um, magically fix me. I had this idea of Buddhist monks having special powers and, <laughs> you know, something like that. And when I got here, I met the abbot here and he basically mm-hmm. said, um, you know, uh, suffering is, is, is part of our life and everyone mm-hmm. has these experiences. And if you really want to, you know, to get it to the heart of this issue, um, then, uh, you know, I can, I can teach you how to meditate. Mm-hmm. And so I took up meditation here and I hated it. I thought it was, torture. <laughs> you know, he asked me after, you know, a couple of times I sat and he said, how is the meditation? I said, I, it's terrible. I feel like I'm, you know, like, why would anyone ever choose to do this? You know, it's like going to hell. And he said, yeah, you know, that's because you're young and you have a lot of energy and mm. you should probably, you know, don't meditate, you know, and I literally was ready to go <laughs> away to university but I loved him so much. I had this deep attraction to the philosophy and to the mm. other people here. And I, the community was very attractive. The idea of being in a community and having yeah. a mentor. And so I said, well, can I, can you be my mentor, even though I don't want to meditate? And he laughed and he said, of course, <laughs> you know, why don't you come over and, you know, scrub the toilets and, you know, help with the gardens. Don't worry about meditating. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's great. You know, so I would do that on the weekends. And, uh, Eventually, I left and went away to university. And he said to me before I left, when you're ready for graduate school, come back and see me. And I knew exactly what he meant. Mm. Um, So eventually, I did make my way back uh, to the center. And yeah, it spent the next, uh, spent six years at a monastery uh, in California, uh, going back and forth from Detroit to California, doing quite a lot of study there. Mm. And then... uh, May I ask which monastery that was? 
Sure, it's uh, called Mount Baldy Zen Center. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We should, Mount, t- we should probably talk a little bit about what Zen is, and because uh, uh, I know about, for instance, I've got the Tassahara Zen Cookbook, um, the Tassahara Monastery Cookbook. I've, I suspect I'm possibly one of the few people in the UK to have that cookbook. Where did you find that? I, online. I got it online because I, okay. um, I think I was uh, for the listeners. I was talking earlier on to my young Jew about. Uh, they have their, there's a podcast called the Blue Collar Zen Podcast. I think I've got right. that right. That's right. And yep. um, it's such a good podcast uh, uh, produced by the Zen Center. And it's so nice to hear the abbot and Maungju talking. But but um, one of the people I've listened to on podcasts is a, is a chap called Norman Fisher, who is a Zen monk, but he's from New York. He's Jewish, but lives in California. And, and right. I think to my, to when I listened to him telling his stories, um, and that's the link with Tassahara, he just, his stories are brilliant and he's brilliant. He's very wise, He's but he's got a very dry, dour sense. And he just, a lot of what he does, he just makes me laugh, some of the comments. And he does say, he says, oh, yeah, I have, a, I have quite a grim outlook on life, but the meditation helped. That's really good. He's not trying to be some happy, right. cheery person. He's not miserable, I should say. Oh, I'm digging right. a hole here, aren't I? <laughs> But uh, if he's if he's listening, I do like you, Norman. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about holes is the is how we figure our way out. <laughs> <laughs> is that meditation, or do we? <laughs> so you were saying you went off to university. Uh, what what did you study? About? Was it to do what to do with Buddhism or something like that? Or? I studied uh, anthropology, and oh, okay. uh, yeah, I was interested in anthrop- anthropology and also um, archaeology. Okay. Yeah, and then when we, but I think the truth is, I was really just interested in, in finding a place where there could be sort of a living tradition happening. I was very mm-hmm. interested in indigenous culture. Yeah. And I thought, you know, these people must have the answers. I have to figure out a way to build my life around, you know, going and studying or living within an indigenous situation, because it was clear to me as a young American that you know there was just something wrong with the picture here. Mm. Uh, and, but I do feel like when I met the Zen center and I met this monk, I had always thought of Buddhism as being the, or especially Zen, you know, something that happened a long time ago. It was a dead tradition. Right. Yeah. It was not open. It was not available to me, even though it seemed very interesting. When I met my teacher here, there was this immediate feeling of, wow, this person is, uh, in, he, he's an indigenous person. You know, I didn't have that those words, but I, there was something very uh, organic and natural about him. I was drawn to that, and what I could see he was attempting to create here was uh, was a community uh, and uh, uh, people living together around a common shared interest of you know meditation and Buddhist philosophy, and I just felt so compelled to explore mm-hmm. that. So at some point, it you know I realized. Uh, I want to live in community, and yeah. I I don't want to go live in an indigenous situation in a different culture. I want to do mm-hmm. that right here in my own in my own culture. So yeah, that that is sort of what the Detroit Zen Center is is a, is a, an attempt and a, an experiment which you know may fail. Um, a lot of Buddhist communities and spiritual communities um, that have formed in the states and in Europe, you know, inspired by traditions of the East. Once the sort of central teacher dies, yeah especially those that have come from from the East, you know, the thing just sort of tends to collapse. And we, we are in this very experimental, you know, mm. period of time around Buddhism, uh, having imported it from Asia. Uh, you know, the challenge is, you know, how do we extract the essence of those teachings 
And uh, I do think that without community, you can't. Um, you know, it isn't uh, something that is that's delivered through teachings without context. We do need yeah. community. Yeah, and I think I read something yeah. by Joseph Goldstein about mm-hmm. about that. I think he wrote a book about um, how you would trans, and it was particularly to an American context, but it would apply to most of Western the Western world. I think yeah. about how you take those things that are very sort of developed in a cultural context mm-hmm. and bring them to West. And I suppose one of my views of Zen was that it's very, um, I want to say severe, but not severe, but it's very or austere, but that, it's not that. It's something, uh, there was something very serious maybe would be mm. the term about it. And yet when I listen to say Norm Fisher or I, I listen to, to you and, and, and to, to listeners as a great, well, Abbott tells stories, well, Mongju tells stories, but it's, there's something really nice when these, certainly the Abbott is doing voices. <laughs> it's really, it, the stories are great, but the ab- voices are brilliant too. Mm-hmm. But there's something that's different. It's, uh, maybe I've missed, uh, maybe I'm getting the sort of slightly distorted perspective on Zen, but there's a lightheartedness to what you talk about as well you know in terms of as well as the, the seriousness as well yeah I, I i think it can be a disease you know i, I definitely felt I, I may have actually promoted the type of you you're talking about early on mm. you know having been quite immature as a monk and as a spiritual practitioner you know i think that's part of this translation that's happening um of zen again coming from the far mm. east in a completely different cultural paradigm, and then it enters the West, and we, mm-hmm. you know, we sort of pick and choose the elements that that uh, maybe we um, we relate to. And I, I had the same view when I trained at a monastery in California. It was a the teacher was Japanese, but the community was were primarily Americans and Europeans. And I have to say that that um, my view at that time and my experience at that time was that Zen was absolutely very serious. Mm. And when I eventually had the opportunity to go to Korea and practice in a context where they'd been practicing together for, you know, 1800 years at the particular temple where I was trained and became ordained, they did not take themselves seriously, you know. (laughs) And I think part of it is that, you know, the type of person attracted to Zen Buddhism in the West tends to be very independent and um, Mm. there's a certain sort of mentality. And yeah, I was. Uh, I when I got to Korea, I realized how arrogant I was and how I was not special. You know, there was nothing mm-hmm. special about being a Zen monk or being a Buddhist practitioner. It was just, you know, like like being a, a carpenter or being a cook. I mean, it was just another choice that one could make. And uh, you know, practicing in a temple where thousands, hundreds of thousands of practitioners have been there before you. Yeah, it kind of takes the takes the pressure off, and it mm. also puts you in your place, which is very, very nice to be put in our true place, uh, you know, so that we don't feel like we have to be, you know, some you know larger than life figure. And coming back to the states, I realized, wow, this is really going to be difficult because what was so overwhelming and so transformative about training and and practicing in Korea in a traditional indigenous Buddhist mm. setting was just how kind they were to each other and to to themselves. You know, they were firm uh, in terms of uh, their approach to practice, but every type of teacher existed. You know, some teachers were just, you know, so warm-hearted and and kind that they would just make you melt. Other teachers you felt like they could see right in right through you and and uh, you know, sort of 
had you on your best behavior walking into the room. And there, but it, every type of teacher and practitioner existed there. And you really felt like, you know, this was, uh, you know, Zen that didn't have a particular flavor or characteristic. And in the West, it really does. You're absolutely right. It uh, tends to be quite, um, you know, we, we tend to take ourselves way too seriously in the Zen tradition, in my opinion. Mm. Well, although my take on the little I know from what I've seen on the looking at your website, talking to you like today, but also we had a, a Zoom sort of pre-chat, pre-chat a few days ago, didn't we? And my sense is that there's a, um, a, ser- a, a seriousness of focus, but also you do have that sort of lightheartedness, which I would imagine actually is really important to sustain oh, you through yeah. uh, stuff that happens in life. And Absolutely. Because we never know what's going to happen, do we? And uh, you, when you went to study over in California, was that to train as a, as a monk or what was that to, to do exactly? Yeah, it, 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 in the beginning, it wasn't quite clear. My teacher here um, at the Detroit Zen Center, mm. the Zen Center here was very young and uh, very poor. And we really had, he had really not been able to establish much here um, because it was within, you know, the first, you know, six or seven years. And at some point he, he said, you know, do you feel like you're, you want to pursue this really as a path? And I said, you know, I I really do. I don't see anything else at this point. I'd love to, you know, explore uh, meditation practice and Zen more seriously. He said, well, I don't think I can do much more for you. I think we we need to send you to another teacher. And another situation that is deeper, and so he literally took me uh, to Mount Baldy and kind of dropped me off. He, there, the, the <laughs> teacher, yeah, the, the teacher there was a, an old Zen monk from Japan. His name was Sasaki yeah. Roshi, and and he became my Dharma teacher. And uh, so he, Sunem knew him and basically said, you know, I, this is my student, and I, I, I want to turn her over to you. I don't think I can help her right now the way she needs to be helped. So I, I got into a, a teacher-student relationship with this uh, Roshi, and he was uh, he was incredible. And when I, I the way I would describe it is, you know, I would walk in the room to uh, meet him or to you know when we were studying, usually in the over the uh, in the context of Zen retreats, and it was like walking into the room with a newborn baby. You know, it was just he was in his nineties at that point. He he died at one hundred and seven. Oh, and uh, so I was studying with him while he was in his 90s. And, you know, he was just, he was just so open and so kind and, and serious, as you're saying, you know, very serious and, mm. but, uh, but not taking himself or life seriously, but just really asking these, these very, very important questions, you know, challenging me to, to ask myself, like, what is your life about? You know, mm. uh, how, how, how can you transcend you know, birth and death, which sounds kind of like a like a cliche, right? But mm. you know, that that's the beautiful thing I think about Zen Buddhist culture is that these questions aren't considered cliche. They're they're considered sort of fundamental to our happiness. Like, why are you alive? You know, Andrew, and uh, what's the purpose of your life? You know, mm. you you're born, you raise children, you get married, you have these hat this happiness, hopefully, but at some point the body begins dissipating and we the, the life comes to an end. So what what what's it all about? You know. Are we uh, are we more than this body? And so I think the the, the great thing about Zen and Buddhism is that it, it's not trying to provide answers to these questions mm-hmm. in a sort of pat way, but really encouraging us to you know to find our own answers and to dig deep. 
and to, you know, potentially come with into an experience of what what did it what it means to be here. And um, so it was my first encounter with a teacher that really pushed me. Uh, and I immediately realized within a, you know, being there after with a few months, I, I realized this is what I would like to do. I would like to become a Buddhist monk. Mm. Uh, if that teacher would have been an architect, I think I'd be an architect. But because he was a monk, a Zen monk, I decided I would like to be a Zen monk. And uh, he said, well, you should go back to your teacher, your first teacher. And uh, so after six years with him, you know, he said, I can't, in the same way, he couldn't provide more of a context. Uh, he told me I should go to Asia. Uh, and so I decided to go. I was, I then went to Korea. That's where I became ordained. Um, and yeah, it's very, very wonderful, wonderful teachings. And I think it is really important that we get away from thinking of Zen or Buddhism as the forms and really get down to what the essence of these teachings are, because they really are appropriate for, um, mm. for everyone, you know, not just people who identify as Buddhist. Yeah. I, and it's interesting because I, I come from, a, I think that, now I think I've got this right, if I remember correctly, that your abbot comes from a, came from a back, Catholic background. Yeah. Um, and, and I come from a Catholic background. So my, okay. my mum was Irish. And uh, so, and I've always been drawn, I guess, to the more contemplative side of things. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and many years ago, went on retreats to Catholic monasteries, which you know, essentially was a lot of silence, but, you know, in prayer yeah. and, and read people like Thomas Merton and yeah. um, people like that. And um, one of the things that I think for me has been, is that sort of sense of, how you can explore life, but in different ways. So some people do it through, you know, getting fit, or some people do it through, you know, careers or and prestige. But some people do it through service and kindness and right. exploring. And I think that's one of the things that really resonates for me, and particularly about you know what you're providing. One of the things I was thinking a little bit about. So if you know if someone's listening to this and, and we're using well, I you know using these phrases Zen and, and meditation and things. Be really helpful, I think, if you and obviously you've talked about some of the reasons what about what meditation Zen is about exploring life and birth and death and things. For the listener who's not tutored in this, how would you describe Zen and and would it be possible to do a, a meditation in this podcast? Because many people never stop, you know, and you know they're busy all the time and they're consumers of mm. social media. And actually to stop and pause and, and listen to the silence in our minds and the external sounds is, sure. I would say, for many people, quite countercultural. Ab- absolutely. It, it's revolutionary, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's go, it goes. So I'd love to do that, Andrew. And I, I guess I'll give a bit of a preamble and then mm. uh, maybe we could do a, like a bit of a guided, you know, a couple of yeah. minutes of a guided meditation. Yeah, that, that would be great? lovely. Yeah. And and would you bring us out of it at the end? So, uh, sure. Yeah, so there's not too yeah. abrupt. Otherwise, I'll be tempted to say, yeah. oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. yeah I thank mean, you. That's really kind. Yes. Uh, what a, what a, what an honor to be asked, you know. So I would say that. Meditation, the first thing is, I think some people have this idea that to meditate, they have to stop thinking. And I think that mm-hmm. we we will never stop thinking be- until we, you know, we die. The thinking is, is just like a, a um, it's a process the same way that we breathe and we have digestion. It's a, it's a process that's happening. Uh, and it's not something we're looking to cut off or to stop. 
Um, but what I would say is that for, we could do this together. So right now, for me, if I really, uh, you know, go back to my own culture and I think about things right now in terms of the scientific method. Um, so with the scientific method, we we really are attempting to take and see what's given, right? We're attempting to stop our our own. Um, we, we're attempting to sort of leave ourselves out of the process of what we're looking of what we're investigating. So we could take that uh, that kind of scientific method right now as we're together. And for me, if I'm very honest and I don't use memory and I don't use what we would call sort of hallucination or projection mm-hmm. or concept- conceptual thought. What's happening is I'm sitting in a room. It has a blue couch. There's a laptop in front of me and I'm looking on a screen and I see another person's face mm-hmm. who I call Andrew. But, you know, if I, uh, to be honest with you, it's the head, your head is about two inches. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my head on the screen is about two inches. And, you know, so, but, you know, in my mind, I say, oh, that's a human being. But in mm-hmm. reality, you're a two inch, you know, thing on the screen. <laughs> There's a wall in front of me. There are some books mm-hmm. over here. There, you know, I can... Um, hear your voice. I can hear some water running in the pipe in the wall. So what I'm taking in here is what I, what we call in Buddhism reality. Uh, and if I start to move away from this actual situation, I've left reality and I've gone now into conceptual thought. So what we try to do first is, is take a look around and see what's actually being given. So this is an experience that we would say, again, in Buddhism, this is what's being given to me right now. Mm. I haven't gone looking for it, right? This is an ex- my experience right now of being in this room and being, uh, you know, looking at a screen with you there. This is what's being given. So it's very, uh, it's very generous, and it's a, uh, you know, my needs are met, so to speak. And so then, as I as I sit here, I can um, bring some awareness to uh, my body. And I can I can notice that even though uh, I'm sure for you you're looking out and seeing you know the face here on the screen mm-hmm. called Myungju, for me as I sit here I actually don't have a face. What I have where you see my face, what I have is a, an experience of allowing everything to come into me. So if I turn my head to the left, the experience of the world to the left comes in. If I turn my head to the right the experience of the world to the right comes in. Mm. And so in a sense, I, I have this thing uh, that, you know, we call a face or a head. But for me, I don't see anything here, right? I don't see a face here. What I what I see is space for the whole experience of seeing to come into me. And so uh, that might sound a little esoteric, but it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very subtle uh, that I don't have you know, a face, what I have is, is, is space for the scene to come into me. So we start in meditation by recognizing that that's the situation, that we usually we're hallucinating our face onto ourselves, the same face that we can see in the mirror, we sort of turn it around and plunk it on. But what we're, what we try to do when we take our seat, or we're attempting to meditate is get back to what's actually happening, right? And so what's actually happening for me right now is I don't have a face, I have an experience of seeing, okay? And then I could move that uh, to the experience of, of, of hearing, the experience of sound. So rather than uh, uh, you know, going anywhere else, I can, right now the world is full of sounds. 
the voice, my voice is coming out from where I don't know. I don't actually know what's what I'm going to say next. It's coming out of what we could call uh, the void, right? The great, uh, the, 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 the great potential, the great space, and suddenly my voice appears in it. It's very miraculous. And uh, it's, it can happen, it's happening at all times, that there are these noises appearing. Now I can hear someone in the kitchen, in the residency next door, sort of opening cupboards. Uh, I can hear your, your breath, you know, through the microphone. So the field of sound is being given to me, and I'm sitting in the midst of that. My consciousness is in the midst of that. And I could do the same thing for my sense of taste and touch. So we call this, uh, you know, kind of meditation grounding in the field of awareness, our, our various fields of awareness, which um, are not esoteric, um, but are, are very, very simple and very basic uh, to being uh, a living human. And uh, so we, we can sort of start by checking in with these various senses. And it uh, hopefully, you know, allows us to feel quite safe and quite secure sitting in the midst of these experiences with, uh, with nothing to do. And then in Zen meditation, we usually start by bringing um, our field of attention, our kind of mind's eye uh, to our experience of breathing. So the eyes are open, and I can uh, experience this field of, uh, of seeing. And the ears are open. And with my, uh, my awareness or my kind of mind's eye, I'm, I'm watching my breath as it comes in and out of my, uh, out of my nose. So it's very simple. The, the practice of meditation is, is really just the practice of sitting right in the center uh, of uh, what's actually being given without making anything up uh, and without chasing any type of particular agenda. So it's a, it's a very vulnerable experience, but it's at the same time very safe. I often tell people it's kind of like, you know, throughout the day we have to put our masks on, you know, and I have to be Myungju and you have to be Andrew. But when we, when we sit in meditation or we, you know, walk in meditation, uh, it's really an opportunity. We take that, that public mask off uh, and be, uh, be this, uh, this experience uh, it's it's an experience that I am. It's not a thing. I'm not a person to myself. Uh, I'm I'm simply an ex- a field of experience. It's a very very uh, very different way of 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 experiencing things. So I would uh, offer to the to the listeners to see if we could just sit sit in that experience of being together for a few seconds. And then as we uh, come out of that experience of, of being, we enter back into the world uh, of doing and thinking. And I, my teacher that I mentioned earlier, Roshi, Sasaki Roshi, he used to ask me, and I, at the time I remember thinking, oh, wow, this question is so deep and so, uh, 
so profound. He used to say, uh, you know, how do you resurrect yourself? Um, you know, you have the experience of, uh, of just being, and then how do you resurrect yourself? And at the time, I was, I was so young, and I used to think, wow, that's really, really deep. But now I realize it wasn't really deep at all. It was very, very simple, you know. It's kind of like, like you plug your cell phone into the wall. We know inherently that things have to be recharged. Um, but somehow we leave ourselves out of that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So meditation is really just an opportunity to, in a very practical, very simple way, we just sit in a space that, uh, and, and experience what's being given. And we, we sort of resist this temptation to chase after something, whether it's a thought or a coffee or whatever it is, mm. you know, which is how we're wired, right? I mean, that's how it's a, and, and, and at the other end, we resist the temptation to um, avoid, you know, oftentimes we're, you know, we're in this, we're sort of between, you know, chasing and avoiding. And then and with meditation, we're just trying to sit in the midst of what's actually happening, not avoiding anything, not chasing anything. And I think it's important as well um, for us to, you know, acknowledge that, uh, you know, if we're taking up this kind of practice, that the reason we're here is because our ancestors got very, very good at chasing and avoiding. You know, they were the ones that were able to chase the food and chase mm. after sex and, and you know, avoid predators and avoid illness. And so this chasing and avoiding are, you know, we're, we've been conditioned for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years we've evolved. And that's why we have the luxury of being alive. So the chasing and avoiding are things that are innate to us as you know, in terms of being alive. And so what I believe is that Buddhist practice or meditation practice, maybe in the future, we'll we won't even need the word Buddhism. But that really what we're attempting to do here, and it kind of started with the Buddha, but even really before him, you know, and and all the spiritual traditions, you know, Thomas Merton, you mentioned earlier, what we're really attempting to do here is evolve, con- continue our evolutionary process, but this time into a, an experience of not needing to chase or avoid. So it really is, you know, this, uh, you know, evolution doesn't stop, right? So I do feel like spiritual practice and meditation practices are really uh, uh, um, yet just kind of another step in human evolution. Mm. What do you do if you don't need to chase or avoid, right? What is that? What is that experience of just being? And I, I mean, for me, I think sometimes just being is very challenging. Yeah, being busy is is sort of can be okay, but sometimes um, just sitting. I know I, you know, that sense of uh, sometimes when I've meditated, my brain, my brain is just chattering away, busy. And then I feel frustration because this is my meditation time. This is my half an hour or 20 minutes. And then I think over time I've learned then to, oh, okay, there's just another emotion, another thought. And um, for me, it's also, I think there's, as you as we slipped into meditation then, for the listeners, I, I think that um, one of the things I, I was already sort of slipping into meditation as Mayongju was talking about the sort of field of experience. And... Um, I could feel it sort of physiologically as well. I think there's a calming. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Zen Center within sort of Detroit, and, and you talked about being, I mean, Detroit itself is is, is diverse, but and then you're in a very diverse sort of community. 
Um, what would people's experience be if they came along to the Zen Center? I mean, what would what would they find? What would be the, what would they be there? What would there be there? What would be there? <laughs> you know, what I hear from a lot of people um, is that they just they don't know why, but when they come, they just feel good. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the Zen Center is is uh, it's it's very it's for me, and I, I hope this doesn't sound. Uh, you know, arrogant because I do live here and I am the vice chairman, <laughs> so I probably can't be very objective. But you know, every time I every time I leave the center and I drive mm. back, I was just in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan a couple of weeks ago, and when I came back home, you know, I was driving into the city, and my mind was coming up that uh, you know, just like you described when you meditate, you know, you get these thoughts and mm. you don't really want them, but <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, it's kind of like so what? You know, they're your yeah. thoughts, and you sort of have to embrace them right otherwise you know who's going to and Mm. so i was driving back into hamtramck and could smell the pollution and the cars and the honking and i just (laughs) thought why am i here why am i not just why don't i go back to korea or something and as i drove around the corner and i came in around to the zen center to park Mm. you know i just felt like this place was a refuge for me and i'm very lucky because i don't leave the refuge you know Mm. But I feel that over the years, because we've had a cafe and a st- uh, an organic food store, and a lot of things are closed now here because of COVID. Yeah, sure. But but really, this has been like a community um, service project. We have you know a public peace garden. Uh, we're developing a green roof on top of the meditation hall that will be open for tea, and it's really all about people and quality of life. But with a, within a spiritual context, and I think a lot of quality of life you can experience in Europe. You know, you live in in, uh, in England. It's it's so much different than the states, where everything was really set up for cars and uh, for shopping. You know, uh, really, <laughs> we get right down to it. You know, where can we shop, and how can we do it conveniently? Mm. You know, and be entertained. You know, with these big sports complexes and. So America is really not designed, especially the the industrial cities, on quality of life. There aren't really gathering places, and so I think though that in whereas in in Europe and in some societies, quality of life is emphasized. Mm. Um, it's walkable. You can you know get groceries you know at the corner store. I do feel that um, there's a limit to you know, quality of life until there is a spiritual element there. And by spiritual, I don't mean religious, Mm. but, you know, how, not only how do we take care of people in terms of their needs uh, outside, but their, their internal need to really be able to have, uh, you know, a deep comfort with the fact that they are uh, sort of fundamentally alone, you know, Mm. Uh, to because, because to be human is to be, alone. I mean, it's like we're born into this particular body. And even if we find a wonderful partner, eventually one of them, you know, one, either one yeah. or the other dies first. And here I, you know, I have a teacher who's, you know, the love of my life. He's just, a, you know, a spirit, my spiritual father, mm. he's almost 80. And as I shared with you, you know, a bit earlier, um, you know, we were going to do this podcast yesterday and we didn't because he had, you know, a health crisis come up. So I'm watching his body slowly, mm. you know, weaken and inevitably will, you know, disappear just as I will. So if we don't really, you know, help people feel comfortable with that situation and really, you know, have an have have an opportunity to not just kind of shove death under the carpet or or illness, but to really open it up and say, well, is there something to be afraid about here? Like what 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 happens? You know, I don't know. I have no mm. no idea what happens, but I don't want to be 
uh, you know, afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, I would like to, you know, be encouraged to explore these questions before they're right in my face. And so I think that when people come to the Zen Center, they hopefully, and what I've heard is that they they feel supported and they feel like it's a it's a place that's about providing something for people rather than a kind of self-serving institution. Uh, so whether they're coming uh, to learn about meditation or they just want to come and enjoy, you know, a public garden. Uh, or they listen to the podcast, or, um, you know, or when we had the cafe running, if they were coming for a, you know, a vegan meal, you know, mm-hmm. the, when we do things here in the, at the Zen Center, we always ask, like, what do people need, you know? Uh, and because we are influenced heavily through the Buddhist and Zen tradition, a lot of what we've come up with is, well, you know, meditation uh, and, uh, uh, you know, spiritual guidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really at the core of what we offer. Um, you know, an opportunity to live together while doing that, which is, you know, the, the community aspect. So, you know, Buddha, uh, which is, the, you know, how to awaken. That's what the word Buddha means. Dharma, you know, like the, the kind of context for that awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Sangha, which means community. So, with those three things are at the, at the core of what we offer. And I think, yeah, we, we have so many people that pass by and they just say, I don't know why, but I just love that the Zen Center is here. And we hopefully never give anyone the impression that they should take up meditation or become a Buddhist because, you know, proselytizing is so boring, uh, <laughs> you know, on both ends. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I don't want to be told what to do and I don't want to tell anyone else what they should do unless they ask, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, Andrew, my- how, can I ask you a question? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious kind of about your own journey. How did you, you know, as a, you know, you... How did you get into meditation and and uh, and the well kind of the Buddhist, so-called Buddhist path? Well, f- funny enough, when I was a student, I remember going into um, a student bookshop and uh, finding a book on Buddhism, and I think I, I bought it. But I think it was one of those dry historical texts which told you all about the different schools of Buddhism and the history and all these different sorts of things. And it actually didn't really mention much about meditation at all or, or anything like that, or communities as such. And um, so it was there. The, the kernels were there. And then I think I lived in Brixton, which is a very culturally diverse area in, in, in London. And an amazingly vibrant place. And uh, there used to be a squat, and uh, they used to have, um, uh, there was a, uh, I think he was Tibetan, a British guy who was a Tibetan Buddhist, and he used to um, uh, do meditations there. And I used to go along to those uh, meditations. And, um, and that was it, really. I went to some meditations, but it never became a part of, you know, who I was in terms of, but it was there. And I think the sort of, there's something about the Catholicism that uh, wove into me. And then I think over the years, things like yoga and meditation um, have become more important to me. And I think that, and then realizing, I don't know how it happened. It sort of almost gradually happened over the years, really. There was no sort of light bulb moment or anything like that. And then I did some online courses with the Redwood, uh, with the Insight Meditation Center, which is Gil Fronsdahl in, in California. I did some fantastic yeah. two online co- uh, courses with them uh, about meditation. That must have been eight or nine years ago. And now, since then, it's just become more part of what I, I do. So, and now I, and there is something you were saying about when people go to the Zen Center, and I have to say, 
I was planning to, uh, when I come to Detroit next year, all being well with COVID, it was due to be this year, but I got cancelled. I definitely want to come on to the Zen Center. And if you're having a clearing up the garden day or whatever it would be, I'd love to do that. But Yeah, or you can just stay here. We have a beautiful uh, apartment. Oh, do you? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it has right. a little bathroom and kitchen, and you can just stay up there at the top of the Zen Center. Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. That's not an Airbnb. No, it's not. (laughs) So there was a place in Hamtramck, actually, funny enough, that I was looking at. It looked really good. But um, so, and uh, one of the things that I think I've noticed, so if people go to Gaia House, because they have uh, weekend, you know, taste sessions. Yeah. Because I think people find being silent for a long time, like more than a few hours, it's really quite difficult, I think. Yeah. And... um, I think people, one of the things people say is that there is something about the ambience, the atmosphere, the sort of slowing down of things. And my guess would be that that's a little bit of what people experience at the Zen Center. You know, you've got the hustle and bustle right. outside. So I think that for me, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm actually an introvert, so I, I, like, I love talking to people. Um, and this is my pro- preferred style, almost one to one. But I find that 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 those those silences are nourishing, really, and I'm quite happy with it as well. And so I think that's yeah. probably my journey, really, in terms of. And this is another step in the journey, which is very exciting. Oh wow! Yeah, that's quite a quite a beautiful journey. Yeah, what's something coming that is coming up for me in listening to you is that it it seems like you are you know, which is very nice. Sort of, it's been very. Um, You've had different experiences, mm. and uh, I feel like one thing you said at the beginning about your meditation practice, um, sort of, which I think I can very much relate to. I think a lot of people have this too, where you sort of sit down, and there's this idea before you sit down that when I sit down, this should happen, mm. you know, and it it because I need it to, you know, I'm kind of insane, <laughs> like I yeah. feel crazy, and I want to not yeah. be feeling that way, so. We sort of approach meditation with this idea of like, this is what I need. And what my teacher has often said to me about myself, because I'll come out and say, oh, you know, I just sat there and like nothing happened. You know, I was sort of uh, getting frustrated or, you know, as you've described Mm -hmm. many things, especially early on in my training. And he would often say, well, yeah, that's because you're approaching it like a materialist, you know, like you want something. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I said, well, yeah, but what's the alternative? You know, like, <laughs> teach me, you know, I'm here. Yeah. And uh, he would say, well, you know, it's just going to take time, young Jew, but, you know, be patient. Um, but really, when you, you know, recognize that in the East, sitting meditation practice, seated meditation practice was considered the most advanced practice that there was. You know, and even my experience when I went to Korea, most of the younger practitioners, monks and nuns, they don't start by sitting in the meditation hall. They have them working, chanting, serving Mm. the community, like cooking in the kitchen, you know, gardening. Meditation is one of those things that you sort of work toward. But there's your there's your puppy again. <laughs> yeah, she's. she's, she's she, she, I think your voice is very calming. She's not usually this. Sort of, oh, by she's now very, she's usually bouncy, but she's quite mellow today. Yeah, so. <laughs> she's, that's very cute. And I'll so I think, you, I'll send you a picture of her. Yes. Um, yeah, please do. But I think that 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 so developing that understanding and, and that sense, you know, of like being patient with ourselves. That yeah, if we if we take up a practice like meditation. Especially if we don't give our, I think that's why retreats are so powerful. Mm. Uh, and we, you know, we we offer retreats at the Zen Center here, and 
to a person, every person that has come. It's almost like you could just predict, you know. They come in in the beginning, you ask them at the end, how was the retreat? You know, whether it's two days or five days. And in the end, it was terrible. In the beginning, it was terrible. (laughs) You know, you sit down and you're like, why did I do this? This is awful. I have to sit here. My mind is racing. You know, I feel like I'm being tortured. You know, I have to sit here with myself. And what you find out there is that you don't really like being with yourself, you know. And I think that, like you've talked about earlier, it's really important that we can begin to laugh at that and say, well, that's bizarre. You know, I don't like to be with myself. Okay. But what they'll say by the end is that was great. (laughs) So in the beginning, oh, this is terrible. And then we work very hard at retreats, even though the irony is that we're doing nothing. We're sitting there and we're breathing. Mm. And then, you know, other people are cooking our food you know, the lights are there, the the heat is on, like, we don't have to do anything. But then we don't like it. You know, yeah. so it's like, we're, we're sort of driven, aren't we? Yeah. But by the end of a retreat, every person that has I've ever seen come through a retreat, if they don't quit in the middle, you know, says the same, <laughs> says the same thing. <laughs> that was, that was wonderful. Yeah. And you ask them, you know, we ask ourselves, why, why is why is it so wonderful? And uh, yeah, I think that there is some magic uh, and uh, sort of just having difficulty and and sort of being in the situation where every part of us is resisting what's happening, but then we do it anyway. You know, it's like, like giving birth, right? I mean, somehow we are designed and, um, you know, like you think of the process of giving birth and what a woman has to go through to mm, give birth yeah. to her child. You think it should be joyful. You know, that's how it should have been designed, if we're supposed to be designed to procreate, mm. you would think that giving birth would, you know, be <laughs> euphoric because yeah. then more people would do it and there would be more people. But it's not that, is it? It's yeah. very much pain. It's, you know, very, very painful. So, but uh, you come out the other end of that and what happens, this bond has been created, you know, between a mm. mother and, and her child. And it's just, you know, it's just remarkable, isn't it? And so I think that we, um, you know, spiritual practice is the same. It is difficult. Um, we don't know why, you know, it would be nice if it wasn't. Mm. Um, but it, it uh, you know, I, I don't know, even this morning as I was meditating, we meditate in the mornings. And I noticed myself just, you know, resisting sitting there like thinking, oh, I, I better get up. I could, I could make an excuse to end this meditation early because I have this podcast to do. Everybody would understand, wouldn't they? <laughs> you know, and it, it really wasn't about the podcast. It was about me just not wanting to sit there for whatever reason. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite funny. And it's kind of like, you know, you have a meal and you don't want to do the dishes, you know, could, is there a servant around? I could, I could ring the bell and could <laughs> come wash these up for me. You know, we kind of have this aversion to work. Um, but that's, uh, that's just kind of how it is. I must admit, there is one, maybe this is too much of an attachment, but there is one thing that I really like about retreats, particularly because I go essentially to Guy House, is the food. <laughs> they do really good right. food. Right. And I have to say, when I first went there, uh, it was just like, oh, this is fantastic. Right. It's great. Really nice. I mean, you know, if you if you want your steaks and things, it's they're not it's not the place to go. <laughs> but, and you and you I know that you and are you the are you do you do the cooking at the center? I don't know how many how many people live at the center? We have uh, five people that live here. Okay. okay. And, and do you do the cooking or do you take it in turns or? That- yeah, we, we, we take turns. Yeah. I'm the, I, for a long time, I was the, 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 um, before I was the vice abbot, I was the cook. 
Um, and I still do quite a bit of the meal, the, the, the cooking. I, I love to cook. It's, it's wonderful. I don't like to wash the dishes, which <laughs> yeah. I, you know, sort of like going to AA and saying, you know, I, I, at first I have to admit, you know, I have a problem. <laughs> I love to cook and I don't like to wash the dishes. Oh, so, <laughs> which, absolutely. So my practice to this day now, I'm, I'm encouraging other people to cook and I'm, I'm the dishwasher. <laughs> oh, there's a really good I, I i'm sure you've seen it but i watch i must watch it again on netflix um is it at, at the chef's table and there's a korean yeah. buddhist nun who's yeah. the, and grow who's the most amazing chef and yeah she's lauded by some new york, new york food critic or, or chef right. i remember watching that and they grow all their own food and i think you're speaking of jung Gwang sunam a buddhist nun and uh yeah i i actually had a chance before she did the Netflix film, um, I lived and stayed with her for a, a short time. She lives in a hermitage above a temple called Bekyangsa. Right. So Bekyangsa uh, is uh, the the abbot there is a very good friend of our abbots. So I was staying at his temple, and uh, he said, "Oh, I'd like to take you up the up the road, uh, you know, at the back of the monastery to a hermitage. There's a wonderful nun there." He knew that I loved to cook. He said, she's a wonderful cook, and I, we're going to go have a meal with her. And so we went, and we had this wonderful meal. And, you know, it's just like you're describing, just like the film. You know, she and her nuns <laughs> prepare everything, and it's just, you know, they lotus roots and, you know, 10-year-old misos, and it's just amazing. And she's just such a wonderful person. And so she, her spiritual practice is not meditation, it's cooking. Oh, really? Okay. So we bonded, and she, you know, we were – because I um, – you know, I'm sort of was being a bit, um, you know, goofy there, but yeah, my spiritual practice for many years and and continues to be uh, preparing food uh, for people, and uh, it's you know it's a wonderful practice. So we were talking about that, and then um, I don't know, I came back to the states, and about a year later, she was on Netflix, and I just thought you know, this is very strange. You know, the, I, it was very, you know, it's sort of, you yeah. go to her hermitage and it's really out of the way, you know? Yeah, and okay. so Eric Repair is, you know, on Netflix talking about her. And I thought, this is remarkable. Uh, and now she's apparently, you know, she's in hiding some of the time because there are so many people flocking right. to her yeah. hermitage. She yeah, really can't, okay. doesn't know what yeah. to do. How is the center functioning now in terms of? You know, we have... We've we've shut down. So March tenth, um, yeah, we did have a food business, and and uh, we were distributing two hundred pounds a week of kale, organic kale. Uh, so we had uh, you know a full crew of uh, local. We we had some workers from the local neighborhood that were employed here, and we had some Zen students working. And it was a community run business, so we were distributing yeah hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food a week, and and ran a, a cafe on site. Yeah. Uh, and with the COVID, it just, it, it came to a halt. Um, and we were, I think like a lot of people, um, you know, a Zen center is a bit like an individual and in that it sort of has its own, you know, sort of, um, it is a bit like like a person, mm. like any institution or business or, or place. So for a couple of years now, we had been feeling, and I had very strongly been feeling that we needed to do something different. And, uh, you know, for many years, we, for almost 10 years, we had this distribution business and organic food cafe and plant-based cafe. And I felt that, you know, it was great, but that somehow um, something needed to change and that we really wanted to develop something where people could come here, not just to eat in a cafe, but 
to have more experiences with um, have opportunities that would actually help, you know, transform their lives mm. in a more fundamental way, rather than us, you know, say, you know, putting kale chips in a box and putting it in a health food store, or taking it mm. to a farmer's market, you know, how do you actually provide something for someone that's going to be truly transformative? And I feel like the Zen Center, I have felt for a few, couple of years now, it's in a very unique position to do that, even in a small way, you know. So I was very interested in, in for example, you know, offering more retreats or mindful meals, an opportunity for people not to just come to the cafe because the food was good and plant-based, you know, mm. sort of, you know, kind of political veganism is actually yeah. quite popular in Detroit, mm. but to actually come and take it a step further and to say, you know, what is it like to eat without talking? You know, what is that? Is that a good experience? You know, uh, and maybe to to offer an opportunity for people to come and uh, uh, have their own retreats. You know, having what we we want to offer, it's called a temple stay program. And there really was no way to do all of these mm. things at the same time. And I was feeling quite guilty in that I couldn't sort of uh, let the crew go. I felt very guilty to end the food business and to end the cafe. Uh, and then COVID happened. And in a sense, it sort of handed us the key and said, well, you know, just like other people, I have we have a lot of members in our community mm. who have made huge life changes now because of COVID. They've, they're going to have career changes and yeah. some of the marriage changes. I mean, there's just so much transformation happening. So the Zen Center is sort of in that period of time as well, where we've just stopped um, all of the the business side of things here, and we're only open uh, for members for meditation in the morning and evening, mm. and then we're doing monthly retreats, uh, and uh, we're you know inviting people that are interested that are not members or existing students to come in, uh, and we, we're doing a, a meditation on Sunday mornings uh, at the Elmwood Cemetery, which is a historic cemetery in downtown Detroit. Right. Beautiful place to meditate on Sunday mornings. And then folks can contact mm. us and come for open meditation on Tuesday nights. Um, and other than that, we've we've just sort of uh, hunkered down and we're protecting our abbot. You know, he's almost 80. So we're right. trying to yeah. be very careful of who comes in and mm. that we're social distancing and, and all of that. But uh, yeah, it's a very strange time. And uh, it's been... Uh, for the center itself, it's been difficult, you know, financially and in that yeah. way. But it, but it's okay, you know. We, we own our own buildings. Okay. Um, oh, brilliant. So that's that's great. I mean, it's Detroit, so it's kind of easy to do that uh, for a lot of uh, places. And so, fortunately, that's our situation. Mm. Um, I think would be, I think, really nice to know was if you if someone was coming to Detroit and um, other than the Zen Center, which should, sounds like be a really important place for people to visit where would you take them in detroit what would you do mm, that's a great question oh detroit is so there's so many places um you know i think that um it would depend on the person right um and sort of where you know what what sort of things they were interested mm. in uh but for me personally uh I I really love going um, to a, an area called the Heidelberg Project. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So that is not far from the Zen Center here, and it was a it's a community art project uh, founded 30 years ago by mm. a gentleman named Tyree Guyton. And what he did was really profound. He took he he I, I think he lived there already, but it was a neighborhood down like the Mount Elliot corridor, which. Mm was very one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city, you know, infested with um, 
you know, just all sorts of, you know, uh, violence and, and a lot of poverty uh, in that particular district, a lot of uh, abandoned homes falling in on themselves and crime and, and drug sort of, uh, you know, drug sales. It'd be, it'd be like the place to go if you're looking to, you know, to, to score or something. And what he did was he started to, um, all of these abandoned homes around him, there were dozens of them. He just started to turn them into um, uh, art projects. And the way he did that was he got his friends together and they would collect scrap things from the streets of Detroit and they would just nail them to the house. So one at one house was called the stuffed animal house and they would find, you know, stuffed animals of every shape and size and just nail it to the house until the entire house was covered with stuffed animals, <laughs> you know, and the, the next house was the clock house and they would just paint clocks all over the house, you know, bizarre sort yeah. of, you know, Dolly style clocks and, some, you know, broken clocks mm-hmm. that were actual clocks they would nail to the house. And that became like the time house. And he just did this all over the place. And artists started to move into the neighborhood because they thought it was so hip, you know, mm-hmm. why not live in the the Heidelberg project? And uh, it just kind of, it sort of went from there. And then the whole neighborhood, really two, three square blocks is just a this very bizarre community art project. And I think it, you know, the, the crime levels dropped and, mm-hmm. and, it became a place where people would go and, and uh, you know, get out and walk around, which before you would never stop there. You'd just keep driving, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you wouldn't even stop at a stop sign, you know, just keep going because <laughs> you might get carjacked. Wow. Yeah. yeah, really. And now, absolutely. And now that's just not happening. And the interesting thing is about 15 or 20 years ago, the city didn't like this. You know, mm-hmm. they thought it was sort of a you know, it's too ugly. You know, it's very unconventional. So they started, they sent the bulldozers. And actually our abbot here led a procession. He did a chanting, you know, mm. Tyree Guyton contacted the center and we brought up, you know, hundreds of people there and, and they did a chanting ceremony basically saying like, no bulldozers. This is really great. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's a, that would be a place mm. I would always encourage people to, 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 to check out um, because it really, it kind of speaks to the power of community and you can feel what, you know, something there that you can't feel in many other places. Um, I also feel like something that is happening that's really interesting is located around Woodward and six mile. Mm. Um, it's the, a neighborhood that has also had a lot of problems, but it has a um, it's near Highland park. Yeah. Uh, it's a very beautiful um, park. Um, and uh it's it's basically you know Woodward and six between six and seven mile. There's a beautiful lake and uh, kind of an original log cabin from the early Detroit settlement, um, and uh, the city and the the community around there is doing a really great job of restoring that. It's kind of like our Central Park, uh, okay. much smaller, yeah, much much smaller, but um, becoming a, a place where artists hang out uh, and are are sort of flocking to that area and restoring yeah. it. That sounds amazing. So I was thinking, I should have asked you this right at the beginning, does Myungju mean anything? It does. Myungju means to brighten what's dark. Oh, what a lovely name. What an amazing name. And is that a name that's conferred on you as part of your um Yeah, when I was when I was ordained. Exactly. Yeah, when I was ordained in Korea, the 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 monk who ordained me gave me that name. Wow. That's that's amazing. What a great name. So, <laughs> so and um, yeah. So, um, no, I'm a bit some nonplus there. I they had one one other thing, and I um, it'd be lovely if we could finish with a little bit of a meditation. But I did wonder when I when I contacted you, 
um, sort of out of the blue, really. Um, how else would I do it? Um, what did you think? Because I think a lot of people are a bit sort of like, oh, what is this? Uh, you know, I think people are a little, not suspicious as such, but um, uh, what's what's going on? What did you think when I contacted you? You know, that's a, it's a great, great question. I think it's a great point. I mean, I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, you know, we, we become suspicious or, we, we you know, mm. we just don't really, um, we don't trust each other, do we? No. You know, no. and that is sort of demonstrated, by, at least in the States, by what's going on at the political level, yeah. and the social yeah. level. You know, and so for me, to be honest with you, when you contact me, I just thought, oh, this is great. You know, how wonderful. Mm. Someone is living in the UK and fascinated by Detroit. So I just sort of took that at face value. And then yeah. as I, you know, listened to some of your podcasts and, and we had our first meeting, you know, I, you're just a wonderful person. And and so I, 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 we can't really, just like when we fall in love, we, we can't really understand why, you know, it's mm, like, yeah. Yeah, we try to think about it or figure it out. It doesn't really make sense often. But I think that you you have a love for the city of Detroit, which makes me want to support you because I love Detroit and, 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 but I'm in Detroit. So it really makes sense that I love Detroit, but the fact that you're not in Detroit, haven't <laughs> been here, no. <laughs> but have this fondness and this, mm. this appreciation and this kind of maybe intrigue by the city. I think it's really, um, it's very special. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's heart open, heartwarming. So mm. that's how yeah. I feel about it. Yeah, which is, which is great. I mean, a lot of people think it's a bit weird because why would someone do that and spend money but and do this? That the and British the other? people, British people are weird. <laughs> Based on what evidence? <laughs> I'm not necessarily disagreeing, actually, and we're not all like Downton Abbey either. Well, I think I think you know I'm being a little bit rude there. I'm just yeah. trying to be funny. But what I what I what I have found I have. One of my best friends is uh, is from London. Yeah, and what I feel is just like is in a way, British people have been empowered for a long time for whatever reason. I'm not quite sure where this comes from, but you're sort of allowed to be eccentric. You're allowed to be <laughs> a bit odd. You know, it's going to be celebrated, yeah, yeah. and and I think that you know we could learn a lot from uh, from that kind of attitude. Yeah, and I think yeah. maybe meditation would help with that. I think I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Myungju, what it's been such a, a really amazing and lovely talk. So, one of the things that I do for everyone is also make sure there's proper show notes. I'll put some links on, including the the nun in Korea and some yeah. other thing. Anything that you send me, I can mm -hmm. put on. But where can people find out about you and and uh, the Zen Center? Where where should they look? I think you know we everything for us is very simple. We don't have we don't we're not on social media a lot, yeah. but we our website um, we try to keep it really straightforward and simple. Uh, DetroitZenCenter.org. Yeah. Okay. So they can go there and find so. And as I said earlier, you've got a, a really wonderful podcast, and uh, we haven't got even into could do a whole series on this but we you know the importance of stories in zen and yeah people listen to that podcast you you really get a sense of why that's important so what would be really really lovely is i think it's appropriate given we're talking about zen and meditation would you would you close our session today with a little little guided meditation and then maybe bring us out and we we can do our final endings and things would you be sure so kind as to do that yeah so um Thinking about folks that are listening and without a, mm. you know, sort of a visual prompt, I um, I would say to find a comfortable seat uh, where uh, whether you're sitting cross-legged or in a chair, uh, 
in meditation, we, uh, we try to use our, our kind of own strength. So if you're sitting in a chair to sort of sit, sit forward and use your own spinal strength and uh, place your two feet on the ground and then bring your awareness to the bottoms of your feet where they're making contact uh, with the ground. Uh, close your eyes for, uh, for a moment. If you're in a cross-legged position, uh, then you can feel the contact at the bottom of your, your legs are making with the mat or the cushion beneath you. And sit up straight. Uh, you'll still have the natural curves of the spine, uh, so it's not like a military position, but uh, the spine is upright and at the same time uh, relaxed. And if you could imagine someone uh, pulling from the top of your head a string up toward the ceiling and then at the bottom of your spine, pulling in the opposite direction. And, and when they pulled that string in opposite the opposite direction, it's as if the spine is being extended uh, and lengthened. So down toward the, the earth and up toward the ceiling, creating some space between the vertebrae. So the back of the body is uh, firm when we sit. That's our, our strength comes from the spine, from the back. And the front of the body is open and relaxed. So the breathing, uh, bring our breathing down to the belly area, allowing the belly to rise and fall naturally. Sometimes it helps to take a couple of deep breaths first pushing all the air out, creating a vacuum on the inhale. So we're, we start meditation by checking in with our, our physical uh, self. And we can bring our awareness from the belly up uh, into the, the chest. Chest is soft and open. The shoulders are open and into the throat, and into the jaw. Again, relaxing uh, that area, allowing it to be open. And softening the, the muscles in the cheeks and the nose and the eyes and face. Again, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, you know, in the podcast, we're, we're allowing that mask to come off. So we can soften the eyes. And in Zen meditation, we keep the eyes open enough to let the light in. So we, our eyes are not closed, but open. So we're sitting and we're breathing. Eyes are open, ears are open. And then I would just uh, offer that we could notice as we're sitting here that we're just sort of sitting in the midst. It's almost as if we're floating in the midst of uh, uh, this particular space that we're in. So if I'm... Uh, 
if I'm truly um, seeing what's actually being given here, there is not a, a, another situation. There's only this one. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, reality consists of this one room. And I'm sort of floating. I don't mean, you know, floating in the air, but, but sort of sitting uh, right in the middle of that. Right in the middle of reality. There's not a second one to compare it to. There's only this one experience. My voice is coming out of uh, what we could call sort of, you know, the great unknown sort of arising out of nowhere and then disappearing. You don't know what I'm going to say next. I don't know what I'm going to say next. And so as we sit and as we meditate, we're really just attempting to sit uh, without any particular agenda just noticing uh, the breath as it rises and falls, the sensation of our body and the sounds and coming into our space. Allowing what's given, what we can see and hear and feel. letting those experiences completely in. Sitting right here in the middle of the one reality that we know. For me, it's uh, uh, sitting on a blue couch with a microphone in front of me and a laptop screen. For you, it will be something different. So usually after a meditation round, we hit hit the bell and awaken back to uh, whatever the needs are uh, in our human life. Kind of leave the the world of what we could call sort of stark simplicity. Uh, uh, it's quite refreshing uh, if we can uh, settle down there, and then we uh, wake up and 
and ask ourselves, okay, well, what's needed from me now? You know, and hopefully meditation uh, provides a kind of launching pad for that. Mm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I sometimes when I've done uh, some meditation with the listeners, I, it's almost like a spacey feeling. It's sort of uh, mm. so calm and, uh, it can feel quite jarring sometimes to come back into reality. Mm. Um, and uh, but thank you, Mangju. Mangju, it's just been such a ah, it's been a really rich experience today. Thank you. It's been uh, really, really nice. I really well more than nice doesn't capture it. It's in, instructive and educational and fun and interesting and enriching. Well, I really, I, I really appreciate that, Andrew. And um, you know, I. I uh, I'm very, very touched that you reached out to the Zen Center and, and uh, are taking an interest not only in the Zen Center, but in Detroit as a whole. And mm. yeah, and I hope that that the podcast could be, you know, could be useful for the folks that listen to it. And yeah, get something interesting out of it. Yeah, thank you. And the, and the world needs places like the Zen Center and, and like yourself and, and uh, the people who and, and your abbot and the other people at the center. And it's, yeah, it's really nice. Thank you. So oh, thank you. Well, I, that was just such a great conversation for me today. And uh, it just it is one of the many wonderful conversations I've had with so many interesting people from Detroit. It's great. I and I'm really grateful to all my guests, uh, past and future ones, who've all given up their time to spend um, yeah, an hour or so of their lives talking about things that they know about or are passionate to them. And I really, really appreciate it. So, What'd be really good? It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of effort to uh, record these shows, put it all together. So I'd be really grateful if you could look over, at, take take a look at the website www.detroitfromacrossthepond.com. Uh, if you're so minded, perhaps go onto the support this project page and have a look at Ko-Fi. Uh, we've got T-shirts there, and also you could just denote, donate something. That would be really, really helpful. And uh, also, if you like this podcast, um, do um, give us a decent review on wherever you listen to the podcast. And also, um, please tell a friend, get them to uh, listen to this show as well. And I'm, I am so grateful for your support wherever you are. And by the way, if you're interested, I've got there are listeners all over the place. And uh, if you happen to be the listener who <laughs> listens in Uzbekistan, or a listener in Iran, for instance, or in India, and of course the States and Germany and other places. Thank you so much. Um, it makes me smile to think that wherever you are in those countries, you might be listening to this about a city in the States of which I haven't visited. And I live over here in the UK, which is sort of quite surreal, and but I think sort of sums up a bit of our connected world. So thank you so much. And I really, really appreciate you as a, a listening audience. And it's very special for me. Thank you. And have a really, really wonderful day. And maybe um, see if you can explore some meditation. Take care. Bye.